as you know, we're uh, in this series called Encounter, and we've been looking at the different uh, places throughout Scripture, and there's a lot of them, over 270, where an angel appears in Scripture and walks alongside an individual or one of the apostles. And so uh, we've had, uh, this is week five, we had Dr. John sharing a couple of weeks, we had Bernie last week killing it with the uh, Gideon, it was so good, it was so, so good. Um, and we're blessed to have a number of great preachers. You get them on next week, come on. We're all excited about that, so that's great. <laughs> I heard a scream from far. Um, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to help us understand that these angelic encounters aren't just um, weird anomalies in Scripture. They're quite normal and they happen quite often. And the place of those things in the mission of God. So we're trying to understand not just something about angels and their place, but what they were there for, their specific purpose within Scripture. And uh, our, I guess part of our desire, too, is to try and demystify a little bit um, some of the spiritual realm, um, because we, I guess, a lot in uh, the Western world like to try and separate those two things. This is the physical world, and that's the spiritual world, and they, they don't overlap. And if you've been to any uh, third world country, uh, maybe you've been uh, to one of the island nations, maybe into Africa, they look at you strangely and think, why would you say that these two things don't connect, but this is um, a lot of our experience, and so we're trying to continue with that. And tonight we're going to be wrestling with what I think is quite an uncomfortable encounter. Um, it's an encounter that many would um, probably call their own faith journey into question over. Okay, and so we're going to uh, see that in a minute. We're going to be looking at Acts five. Um, and it's been a great few weeks exploring uh, a few of these. We've been trying to go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, trying to keep that, that balance. But as we head into Christmas, there's a lot of good angelic encounters that we can uh, have a look at on the way in there. But as we start tonight, let me pray. Lord, we're truly thankful uh, that we can gather and that, Lord, even uh, right now you are among us and that you are speaking to our hearts by your Spirit. Pray that you would uh, take away any distraction from this man and your word. And Lord, help people to see what you want to say to them tonight through this uh, amazing story of Peter. Uh, so we just ask your blessing upon it tonight in spirit for you to come and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I do not have this on a PowerPoint slide because Rob had to make his own ones this week and he's rubbish at making slides. So uh, I'm going to read it out to you tonight and uh, you, can, you can follow along if you want. If you have your Bibles, Acts 5, we're going to be reading from verses 17 through to 42. All right. So it's quite a long one, but you'll get to understand why in just a few minutes. All right, so from verse 17, so we've got Peter uh, getting put in prison and then getting released from prison. And it says, Then the high priest and all, the, all of his associates, so his big posse of people, there's usually like 40 or 50 of them, uh, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy because of what had just transpired earlier on in Acts chapter 5. And they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail which makes me think maybe it was a bit of a stink jail, but anyway. Uh, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors to the jail and brought them out. And he said these things, Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. So most of you would have 
um, probably seen some sort of depiction of what the temple courts were. It was this huge area that hundreds of people come into. It was a place of trade. It was a, it was a really sort of um, a key spot within uh, Jerusalem and, and the surrounding areas. And then at daybreak, they entered the temple courts. So they just sort of glossed over an angel miraculously opening the doors and letting them out of the prison. But what they put emphasis on is the mission that he called them to. Okay? So there's these two key things. It's just like, oh yeah, angels do that. Just see, you know, it's just a normal thing for us. All right. Um, for me, that was just lack of fear. Usually in some of these other scriptures that we look at, there's this, oh, it's, a, it's an angel. These guys were like, Joyce, we're up. Um, it was pretty normal. So at daybreak, they entered the temple courts, and as they had been told, they began to teach the people. And when the priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, which is like a court of law in that society at that time, all of these 50 or so guys, uh, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. And they sent to the jail uh, for the apostles, because they'd obviously been caught doing this already, and they wanted to give them a bit of a slap down. They wanted the sect to die away because it would, um, it would really impact how they lived and what they did. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, <clears throat> we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. So this morning we heard from Marilyn, and later on in chapter 12, the same thing happens to Peter, and the temple guards, they get killed, right? So um, this probably seemed a little strange to them, a little worrying because of what's been going on in the earlier part of the story. And then someone came and said, look, the men who put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles they did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. Now, you need to just go back one little bit to the start of chapter 5 where those same apostles are sitting there and Ananias comes in and he's like holding back some money and, and Peter just says to him, I know what's going on. You're holding some money back and all of a sudden, dude's dead on the ground. Right? And so they're a little bit worried that the people who saw those healings, those kind of miracles, are just standing around there just going, let's just be a little bit careful because if we use too much force, they'll get grouchy with us. And then someone, oh, sorry, next bit. Where am I up to? Uh, Peter and the apostles replied, this is so good. Um, oh, I've jumped ahead. Give me a second. The apostles were brought and made to appear before the Sanhedrin uh, to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, this name, so you didn't name Jesus. Yet you, are filled, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Guilt begets guilt, doesn't it? And Peter and the other apostles replied, and you can imagine this, right? So they're a little group, maybe 10 of them, in the middle of this massive big open court. And there's hundreds of people, but then there's these 50 bigwigs in their phylacteries and robes, all staring at them. And he says this, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, 
whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. They're going to get in trouble. God exalted him to the right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Um, I love how the message of life is just wrapped up in those three sentences. And when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, now this guy, he's, he's one of these 50, he's well known. I don't know if you were here a couple of weeks back when uh, Craig talked about the two different Rabbianic schools that, um, that these people would sit in. Gamaliel was under Shammai, I think it was, and Halil was the other one. He's a big name, okay? And he's, he's a pretty smart cookie. I, I picture him like one of those guys on the Marae who sits there with his, sitting with his arm on his stick and then when he stands up and he lifts up his stick, the whole place goes quiet, right? That's, that's this guy, Gamaliel. And it says, as a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the peoples, okay? So he's big. Uh, he stood up in the Sanhedrin and he ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. I need to talk to the people. And then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, I could imagine it. Uh, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago... Thaddeus, uh, Thaddeus appeared, he was one of Peter's um, uh, disciples, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. And after him, a guy called Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in a revolt. He too was killed, and his followers were scattered. Therefore, this is profound from someone who's opposing these guys. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or their activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. This is, this is where it gets a bit hard. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Oh, yeah, just casually. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and he let them go. <laughs> just, it's phenomenal. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is Messiah. Wow. What a story. Um, I, <laughs> I, when, I, when I read through that and, and I was wrestling with all the little pieces, that the last bit is the hardest bit for us to read, I think. Where they were flogged and they left rejoicing. Flogged and left rejoicing because they counted themselves worthy of suffering disgrace. How many up for that? Didn't think so. Uh, I think that's phenomenal. See, this the scene that is kind of set by this group of zealous Sadducees, they want to they keep their reputation. 
a lot of what they had and how they operated was based around if they could control the people. And these kind of sect things that came up, they had, um, you know, they had the purpose of unearthing them and putting them out of their positions. And so they were leaders within their community, which came with honor, which obviously came with power, which came with money. And they were followers of Yahweh, but they just didn't believe in this Jesus character that came along. And they didn't want this to stir up the whole of Jerusalem. So they, they said, let's just... Let's just put a dampener on this. Let's try and put out those fires. Let's let's flog a few people. You know, just get the get the people under control, uh, and everything will be all right. And uh, the apostles uh, came in, and they just continued to undermine these things. And right in the middle of this court, they say, "You are the ones. You are the ones that killed Jesus." I mean, it's like red rag to a bull. I remember a couple of years ago watching um, Top Gear and Jeremy Clarkson driving that car through Argentina with some, um, uh, what is it? Uh, it was a number plate that said something about the Falklands Wars. And I mean, I don't know if you, you can have a read online about the Falkland Wars, but essentially he was driving through and this mob of people were literally chasing him. I was like, you are an idiot. You are crazy. I mean, he was, he was, he was going to get lynched, you know, um, but he thought it was a great joke. This is the kind of stirring up that these, that they weren't doing it to have a laugh. These guys were actually doing it to point out the fact that you were not following Jesus. You are the people who killed Jesus. And Peter was there for one reason, because God enabled it through this angel. Peter was standing before the highest legal court to testify because God made it so. Not because he just wanted to be smarty pants and be up the front. No, no, God ordained that moment. He brought him out of that jail. And it's because uh, Peter understood something, which I think is probably the key point for us to understand tonight. He understood something about God's holiness. See, it was God's holiness that actually drove Peter to do all the things that he did. He understood. We go back just a little bit in the story, and he's standing there with the authority of God, and Ananias comes in and dies, and Sapphira comes in and dies. They walk out of there, and, and we read just over here, the apostles heal many. You know, they're going around. I mean, people were bringing people into the street, and they were laying them down, hoping that Peter's shadow would just pass over and heal these people. This is a big deal, okay? And people were rising up. Peter knew that he didn't do it out of his own strength. He knew something about God's holiness, and he trusted God to do what he said he would do. And he was just being obedient. He was just walking in obedience to God. You know, f- these, these, this flogging that they got, I, I was reading that it's 40, 40 minus 1, so 39 whips with this whip. And, and it, everywhere I read it, it talked about that they would be beaten within an inch of their life. And they were stoked about it. What? They were stoked about it? I think a good bunch of today's society and even the church have been sold something <clears throat> controversial here, sold something about salvation that's a little bit of a lie. Something that faith in God, they don't, that, that, that faith in God, that's something they've been sold as a bit of a lie. 
I think it's been mentioned in the past two decades. There was a, <clears throat> um, there's a lady who wrote a book called Melinda, uh, what's her name? Denton, Melinda Denton, and she wrote a book called Soul Searching in 2005, and she coined this term for the first time, moralistic therapeutic deism. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating concept, and I'll, I'll read you out some of the points in a second, but it's actually started to um, trickle out into um, normal society of church. Um, this, this way of thinking about God, uh, is, is, it goes like this. It says, God exists, uh, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay, we can deal with that. But then it goes on to say, this is how they think. This is the idea. That God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Uh, this way of thinking says that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Does that sound familiar? God loves good people, and good people go to heaven when they die. <laughs> How many of you have probably heard something to that effect filtering in through some of the messages that you've heard? We, we actually have diminished the holiness of God when we start thinking that way. I know it's going to sound a little bit offensive to some, but stick with me. See, a good proportion of Western Christianity teaching uh, has began to fall into this mode and, and arguably could be blamed for the high proportion of what we call faith exiles, people who were once a part of the church and decided, actually, it's a little bit hollow. It's a little bit weak because of God's holiness. Um, how many of us, when you know, our phone updates and it comes up with the terms and the conditions and we just blindly click accept? Yeah, how many do that? I do, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I just want my phone to work, right? In fact, it's actually got to a point now where they don't even put decline on there. They just put accept. You've got no choice. Just push accept. And if you don't push accept, your phone does not work. Okay? Um, there's, a, there's a list of things that, that God gave us. And we, um, <clears throat> we often blindly push accept without truly knowing exactly what all those things mean for us today. Uh, we come to a point in our life where we're going, actually, God, I, I don't trust you for certain things. I don't believe that this is the way of life. We're wrestling with something of God's holiness. Okay? We have started to blindly ignore the terms and the conditions, this... Um, this point at which we just go, actually, I just want to download the program and I, 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 I don't care about the conditions. I just want Jesus because we've been sold Jesus in such a way that good people go to heaven. Charles Spurgeon, uh, he's, oh, I missed, there you go. It's my second slide. Pretty cool, eh? Um, that's why they don't get me to do slides. Charles Spurgeon, he wrote this. He said, Unless you preach the terrible doom of the wicked, you will never see the greatness of the salvation which comes to us by our Lord Jesus. 
You see, Spurgeon understood this, and, and, and every time he preached, it was just profoundly, it, it was like he was some sort of intolerant, you know, crazy guy up the front. He always spoke about the holiness of God in such a way, in such a profound way that it offended us. And there's so many ways in which he, he was put in the paper, and there's lots, um, lots of pushback to him. But he was right. You see, if we can't understand where we were and where Jesus brought us to, we actually can't understand this passage that I'm reading. If we cannot fully grasp the, and understand the holiness of God, I might as well stop right now and not continue on with the sermon. It is that important to our growth and our understanding of faith. Peter and the other apostles who are put on trial here have been enlightened by the Spirit and by experience to God's holiness. And so when the angel appears, there is no fear because, well, they were prepared for any contingency. God in his sovereignty doesn't promise comfort or safety. Grace that leaves us uh, that doesn't leave us where it found us. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There's another commentator, and he said this. He said, The disciples were indwelt and possessed by the Spirit to such a degree that they were his organs of expression. How cool is that? See, miraculous deliverance or not, our primary responsibility is to be obedient to God. And we can't be obedient to God if we can't understand his holiness. All of these things that we're learning, all of these things that we say we could have, should have, would have, this is the way we should live, we can't understand and grasp it without first understanding God's holiness. He goes on to say, Spurgeon, he says, Christ has not come to save us in our sin. He has come to save us from it. It's profound. Until we know and own our salvation, the holiness of God makes no sense. This passage has, um, this passage and anything further I'm about to talk about seems foreign to our ears until we can wrestle with that a little bit more. So God's holiness is an essential conviction we must first ascertain. And once we've, we have that insight, that conviction, we can make sense of what this, the disciples' bold obedience uh, in the face of certain harm means. So I want to just take a moment, push pause, and I want you to just take one minute to pray by yourself. And I want you to pray about what you know of God's holiness and ask him to reveal himself to you just for this one minute, okay? Maybe just 30 seconds, let's go. Funny, I prayed earlier about that very thing as I was reading through this, and the same word came to me now, which is the word 
awe. I stand in awe. Understanding something of God's holiness is about being able to stand in awe, honest awe of him. And when the angel appears and rescues the apostles, they know this. They already are in awe of God and willing to walk in those things that he's called them to. But he asks two things of them, and I'll jump through these quickly. One of them is about proclamation. Uh, X5 shows this Jerusalem church exhibiting both the understanding of God's awesome holiness, uh, which provoked fear amongst some of these outsiders, and they also lived into the power of God, which made the gospel, those three sentences we talked about in verses 30 to 32, that is the very condensed version of it, but that the gospel would become attractive to those outsiders. Many of us can't see being flogged or being persecuted as something that would be attractive. And we'll get to that a little bit soon. But there's this guy called Carl Henry, and he wrote a a crazy book called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. There you go, there's one you can look up. Um, Anyway, he wrote this, he said, we must confront the world now with an ethics to make it tremble and a dynamic to give it hope. It's tremble because they understand and are in awe of God, but also hopeful because they understand the gospel story of who Jesus is, why he came, and why him being resurrected gives you eternal life. We can't have one without the other. We must understand the the depravity and the wickedness of human nature and the holiness and goodness of God that saves us from it. That is the proclamation he's calling us to. This whole passage is like a neon sign for evangelism. Go out and tell people about who Jesus is. But know God's holiness first. Go out and do this. Tell people about that message of Jesus, that resurrecting, saving life of Jesus. But do it with the conviction and the knowledge that God is holy. This whole passage is about that. They were the agents, those apostles, were the agents employed for spreading the gospel, not the angel. The angel made a way for them, gave them the message of God. He opened the doors for them. They had to bring the message. And three times in this passage, the the apostles are called to teach this new life. A wise woman who may be sitting in this room once told me, that once, <laughs> that what you win them with is what you win them to. I'll if we, yeah, <laughs> it's a good quote. If we preach a gospel without suffering or persecution, we win people to something less than the gospel. And this, this idea of suffering or having to go through um, persecution, it's. It's obnoxious to people. It sounds like some sort of intolerant sect to many. Yet we're called to lean into the holiness of God, not the desires of man. And when we do, we understand it. 
The apostles carried their message boldly, knowing the consequences. It's about reading the terms and conditions and clicking accept at the start, but there is no compromise. And, they, uh, and their lived experience showed it. They understood it. The book of Acts is very clear. Suffering is an essential feature of effective evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel. It will happen. We're called to it, therefore expect this. If that makes you uncomfortable, go back to point A, God's holiness. Stay there for a while before you move on to B. <laughs> There's a third thing that comes out of it, and it's something that I, I talked up this morning in the service. And it's this. <laughs> when we understand God's holiness... And we're about proclamation of God's gospel, his gospel of Jesus Christ coming. It will inevitably lead to this civil disobedience in some way. Okay, I've got to take some time to explain this and I haven't got long left. <laughs> One of the lines that the, gospel, uh, that the um, apostles use in there says, we must obey God rather than human beings. Civil disobedience is a biblical concept. They stood in their court and they went, we're going to tell, tell people about Jesus anyway. And they were like, we're going to flog you. They were like, do it. Bring it. Put me in jail. He ended up in jail again. An angel just let me out. Uh, I mean, I doubt that they had that sort of casual nature about what they said, but it comes across that way to me. Um, but what is acceptable civil disobedience look like today. We can go back in some of these chapters and look at uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're not going to worship. We're not going to bow down to your idols. Good. Go in the fire. We're in the fire. Uh, here we come out of the fire. Um, Daniel, he refuses to stop praying. Right. We're going to feed you to the lions. Daniel, in the lions. Yes, I'm in the lions. I'm still alive. Shame. Um, out he comes. Why? Because of the boldness of understanding who God is. Now, Marilyn brought a, a good counter to this this morning. You may die. <laughs> you may die. You get into you know, chapter 12, James is dead. But he was standing for the things of God, and Peter still continued to preach. And his mate's dead. People are in jail. Civil disobedience. We are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would involve disobedience to God. Right up until that point. So there are two situations that warrant civil disobedience. Biblical warrants, I think. The first, as we've just said, when believers are required to deny their faith in Christ or explicitly disown their Lord. Stand up against that. Rile against it. No, I'm not going to not talk about that. <laughs> the second is where the state requires Christians to take part in an action which is in clear conflict with their Christ-informed Christ conscience. We're seeing a lot of Christians stand up against the abortion and euthanasia um, and even uh, the uh, marijuana bill that's going out in Canada's reform law bill. These are all people who believe that their Christ-informed conscience is being shaken. 
In fact, there is a, a Christian author who wrote a book with some rules about biblical civil disobedience. Can you believe it? And uh, he's got a few, few rules for you. Because we all think probably, actually, what I'm going to do is next week I'm going to make a menace of myself in society. Rob is giving me license to go out there and be a menace. You can go and be a menace if you stick to these rules. Let me read these rules to you. All democratic and constitutional means must be genuinely exhausted. It is far preferable to persuade people by democratic argument. There you go. Number two, civil disobedience should be open and public. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, it should be submissive to arrest and punishment, ready to take responsibility for its legal illegal actions. It should strongly prefer nonviolent methods. Some would say uh, it must insist on nonviolence. And some of you understand some of the pacifist movements around the world. Uh, number four, actions of civil disobedience should display a knowledge of the law and a full respect for it. Action should be appropriate to the cause. And number six, civil disobedience should have a specific and realistic end in view. It should not be designed or undertaken in ways that are politically counterproductive. They made rules about civil disobedience. But what I read in there is a biblically informed understanding of civil disobedience, right? These guys in this passage are doing exactly that. They are taking a biblically informed, Jesus-informed approach to what they're doing. You know what? We're going to ignore what you have to say, and we're going to stand for the things that God has called us to. Why? Because just a few passages ago, someone died for not doing that. It's pretty obvious. The problem for us in the West, and I call it the greater West, it's, it's a term we use to describe the, the affluent society in which we live in terms of New Zealand. Very lucky, very little war has ever affected us. We, we live at the bottom of the planet where it's all green and lovely. Um, is that the right actions won't always look victorious in public, do they? Standing for God and proclaiming who God is in our everyday life and standing for those things, they, they don't look very victorious um, when we take that stand for what is right and, and what is biblical. Even in as minor as acting with, with integrity uh, will often cause a Christian to, to question the Bible before they act rightly or justly. Oh, but they don't deserve it. And, oh, it was inevitable. It was, these are the kinds of things that sort of come up for us as excuses. Suffering is a counterintuitive element in our culture, yet expected in Peter's time. The apostles and the message of the gospel spread through these things. Winning by losing, honoured by the dishonour, Disgraced on the account of the message of Jesus, and that was an indication of their worth. Suffering equaled loyalty. How many of you would put your hand up for any of those things? I, I can't honestly say I would. Why? Because we're just not in that world where we have to wrestle with those things. But it's what we're being called to in the scripture. I think of people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, his 
civil disobedience was to try and take down Hitler and his plot. Now, I don't necessarily agree that it was biblical, but that was what he was compelled by, this understanding that God was calling him to put a stop to this. I think of those that smuggle uh, Bibles into China. We probably don't need to do that anymore, just use digital means. But, you know, they wanted to smuggle these Bibles in. And they were getting caught and they were getting put in jail. I think of our very own Stephanie Christensen, who talked about throwing MP3 players into ladies' windows in Egypt with the message of the gospel and, and stories about who Jesus is. Excellent. That's my kind of civil disobedience. But this week I was, I was struck by a couple of stories, and the first one I couldn't get a picture of, but there's a, um, in the news there was a picture of a huge evangelical church in China, and there's probably 3,000 people inside there. And there's these massive wrecking machines tearing the building down on a Sunday morning while that congregation worshipped inside it. It's a real story. Um, I couldn't get the picture. I don't know why I got the picture. But anyway, the picture of these, these things in China, you're not allowed to be a Christian. If you're going to be a Christian, you have to follow the rules, which is the three self-church, and, and you're not allowed to meet. And these people were like, no, we're going to worship Jesus anyway. They were bulldozing the building whilst they were worshipping in it. There's someone else uh, who I, I count, I think that's pretty hardcore actually, still worshipping well. <laughs> Uh, they, they said the, um, the pastors were detained and charged with suspicion of gathering a crowd to disturb social order. Hallelujah. There's this guy here. Uh, where is he? This guy here. His name is Shane Claiborne. Some of you might know who Shane Claiborne is. Uh, Shane is a Christian activist and an author. And uh, he's famous for a, a book called Irresistible Revolution. Um, and Red Letter Christians with Tony Campolo. He um, has been a part of monasteries and setting up all sorts of um, different kind of edgy Christian stuff. But he's, uh, he's written a book recently um, called Executing Grace, How the Death Penalty Killed Jesus and Why It's Killing Us. Uh, this is Shane being arrested for about the seventh time. Uh, for demonstrating outside a court. Um, they had just sentenced someone else to death. Um, he has found that uh, at least 12 people um, have been put to death so far that he knows and that he's encountered who um, were proven innocent. But because of the system in America, um, they either have to get clemency from a governor or something like that, these people died innocent. He hates the death penalty and he doesn't believe it's biblical. And so he's making a stand. Shane has given his life to the abolishment of the death penalty. And this is him <laughs> being arrested. Now this is another pastor over here uh, who also has been arrested with him quite a few times. Um, they're, they're doing it in a pacifist way they stand there with their signs. They're told you're not allowed to have signs. They stand there with their signs and they say, we do not agree with this. This is not what Jesus would want. I want to close by asking this. What part of your life is the holiness of God having its greatest effect on? You see, what we're moving into, and I could go on, there's a whole bunch of other ways which I think that the angel is calling these disciples and these apostles to, 
to live and be different. <clears throat> but what ways is the holiness of God affecting how you live? Because if it's not affecting how you live, you need to go back to point A again, which is understanding the holiness of God. You see, these kind of actions, these kinds of ways of being, the civil disobedience, they, they come from somewhere. They're not just angry people who decide one day, I'm just going to do something stupid. These are people who, under the conviction of God, lean into a message that transforms the world. And I wonder tonight, how is this understanding of God's holiness transforming you? Do you proclaim who God is through your life? Have you ever stood um, as these guys have and, and been opposed to something? That's what I'm asking tonight. How important to us is the gospel of Christ and the honor of his name in our life? Let me pray. Father, we're so thankful to live in the relative peace of a beautiful country like New Zealand, and I do not take that for granted, Lord. But even in the last 20 years, I've just noticed so many things beginning to creep in to our life that have become normal, that actually stand in so many ways in opposition to the gospel and in opposition to your holiness. And tonight, Lord, may we be challenged to firstly understand that in a deeper way, what it means to be in relationship with a holy God. Help us to understand where we have come from and where we get to come to because of Jesus. May you grow in us a boldness and a courage with our message that you've given us. May we even stand in the way of injustice in the terms that the Bible give us. I pray tonight for everyone in this room and everyone watching online, Lord, that you would, you would evoke some civil disobedience by your holiness. That you would evoke in us the proclamation of your gospel message summed up in those three verses to those around us, to those we work with, and to those places where we have influence, Father. We ask all these things by the power of your Holy Spirit that you sent to guide and to lead us and to comfort us even in the midst of what sometimes feels like a flogging. Holy Spirit, lead us, we pray, and give us that boldness in the weeks to come. Amen.